Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be back with you all this Sunday morning as we worship, as we share together in the Lord's Supper and reflect upon the things we've sung about, we've read scripture about and prayed about this morning and the cleansing work of our Savior. As I uh, think about this, really, the text we're in, um, we're going to come back to our study here in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. You can go ahead and begin turning there as we return wholeheartedly to our study of Matthew, having taken a break from it uh, for our study of Jonah this summer. But as I was thinking about this passage, I was really struck by how much we like to have things fixed quickly. We like to save time. We like the quick and the easy solution. Why else would microwaves be so popular? We have instant coffee. We have instant oatmeal. We have instant delivery of our Amazon packages. We want it easy. We want it quick. That's our natural tendency. And really, it's no different when it comes to spiritual things. We want it quick. We want it easy. Yes, we want our faith to grow, at least I would assume that, like me, you wish that your faith would grow. But if only there was an easy, there was a quick solution for it. Something that would perhaps jumpstart it or help it to grow by leaps and bounds quickly, as opposed to the, what seems to be the slow and painful process it normally goes through. I think this is one of the reasons that we are drawn to signs and wonders. And you don't have to go to a charismatic church to be drawn to signs and wonders. We all like big things. I don't think there's anyone in this room who hopes that their prayers are not answered. I don't think there's anyone here who would not love to hang up the, or to, to finish praying and then to have their phone ring and find out that the person they were praying for was instantly healed. To hang up and find that the next person had been healed. To hang up that call to find out the other person that they had been praying for had just been healed. In fact, I think many of us believe that if that were to happen, that would increase our faith. The question is, would it? Would that increase your faith? I mean, if only my friend, if only my neighbor or my family member could see some sort of miracle, some sort of sign. I mean, maybe I can't just make things happen, but if God would just do this one big thing, that would convince them. That's how faith works, right? Or is it? As we return to our study of Matthew this morning and this passage, the interaction that we are allowed to peer into sheds a great deal of life on the subject of signs, wonders, and miracles. But it's not going to come easy. You're going to have to think this morning. Most of the teaching Jesus does is really this way. If you're interested, you'll take the time to think about it. You'll take the time to ask hard questions, to wonder what what is at stake here? What does this mean? So if you take the time to think this morning, to interrogate the text, I think we'll be rewarded together with insight into how faith in God really works. How does faith grow? How does faith begin? So read along with me, if you would, Matthew really beginning at the very end of chapter 15, verse 39, 
through the first few verses of chapter 16. Sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Magadan. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up. And testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it, except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, and they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began to discuss amongst themselves, saying, he said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand? And how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the four thousand? And how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Let's pray. Father, we ask you this morning to illumine our minds, to give us understanding through your Spirit as we come to this text. Father, as we come with our littleness of faith, would you help it to grow and to increase? Would you help us to see the manner in which it is to grow and to increase? To not be tempted to be led astray by our own logic, our own reasoning, our own expectations, our own opinions about how faith should grow and how it should increase. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for Christ's death on the cross that we have celebrated this morning, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, but the sacrifice that was given for us so many years ago. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, we once again find ourselves in a scene in the midst of Jesus' ministry. Chapter 15 ends, as we just read, with Jesus returning from the Gentile regions. You may remember he had been in the Gentile regions in chapter 15. But he goes back across the Sea of Galilee into the region of Galilee on that western seashore in verse 1. We don't really know how long Jesus was in Galilee before the events that begin in verse 1 of chapter 16 take place. The Pharisees and Sadducees, it says, came up. That is, they came up from Jerusalem to the north. But we would assume with the rapidity with which Matthew moves from Jesus' arrival to the arrival of the Pharisees and Sadducees that this was a relative short period of time. Perhaps that evening, perhaps the very next day after Jesus had arrived. Word spread amazingly fast when it came to Jesus. Now, since you aren't living in first century Israel, you may not have picked up on a rather peculiar thing that Matthew has just mentioned. I know we're 
a phrase in, the Pharisees and Sadducees came up. And this is incredibly peculiar. It's peculiar because the Pharisees and Sadducees, well, they're an odd couple. These two groups are at odds with one another. Or as one commentator puts it, they are far from friendly toward each other. The Pharisees and Sadducees are opposing religious groups or sects. The Sadducees are also highly political, deeply concerned with the internal politics of Jerusalem and Israel, and at this time there were a lot to be concerned with. It was a highly charged political environment, and they were right smack dab in the center of it. But they were often frequently at odds with the Pharisees and the teaching of the Pharisees. But the appearance of the Sadducees at this time also helps to explain that Jesus was now perceived as a legitimate concern and threat, not only to the religious system and the religious environment of Israel, but now to its political environment. That's why the Sadducees are bothered to come up. Jesus is viewed as a serious threat. These two opposing and hostile factions presenting a united front against Jesus highlights this. In other words, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Now, in the previous chapter, Jesus had gone out of his way to expose the spiritual danger of the Pharisees, calling them hypocrites. And if you remember, and we might be forgiven for not remembering since it's been almost two months now, as we've gone through our study of Jonah. But almost two months ago, while we were in Matthew 15, you may remember that the disciples were concerned about Jesus' rather, shall we say, indelicate treatment of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Jesus' approach was more of the bull in the china shop. And in their somewhat anxiety-driven concern, they said to him in verse 12 of chapter 15, Do you know or were you aware that the Pharisees were offended when they heard you calling them hypocrites? I don't know how they were supposed to respond other than to be offended, but they felt the need to ask. Well, Jesus is not really worried about offending them. Back in chapter 12... Going back a little further, in verse 14, the Pharisees had already begun plotting how they might kill Jesus. So Jesus' response naturally is to antagonize them further. In verse 34 of chapter 12, Jesus called them a brood of vipers. Again, not exactly the language of someone you're worried of about offending. Not someone you're worried about courting their favor. Well, this time... Pharisees, they've been beaten up by Jesus. They've been flummoxed more than once. This time they show up with reinforcements. And this combined assault of the Pharisees and Sadducees again highlights the mounting opposition and hostility that is growing toward Jesus' ministry. At this point, just one phrase in, you should already realize that the appearance of the Pharisees and Sadducees is not innocent investigatory purposes. But Matthew paints the picture a bit further when he says they came up testing Jesus. We've seen this before, haven't we? Jesus being tested right at the beginning of his ministry. The same term is used when Jesus is tested at the end of his 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. Only then it was who testing him? Satan, the devil. 
I would suggest that the reference to testing here by Matthew is no accident, but is intended to draw a direct parallel, a correlation and comparison between these religious leaders and the one whom they serve, the devil. Setting us up for Jesus' warning in verses 6 through 12. Now we spend this time describing the Pharisees and Sadducees because it provides some important color and context to when they show up. These are not neutral bystanders, nor are they genuinely inquisitive persons. These are persons who have been plotting to kill Jesus for several weeks now. These are persons fundamentally opposed to his ministry and teaching. These are persons who have closed their hearts to belief. Who are approaching Jesus with a predetermined answer and response to whatever sign or wonder Jesus will do. They're also rather presumptive, thinking that they can force Jesus to give them a sign. They're not coming to learn and to be convinced. They've already made up their mind. They, they really fit very well Paul's description of ungodly persons in 2 Timothy 3.8. When he reaches back into the chapters of Exodus, when he says, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. Janus and Jambres, those Egyptian religious leaders who opposed Moses, so too we have the opposition of religious leaders against Jesus today. Their words then, while posed in the form of question, are anything but. They're really an accusation. You may have a question mark there, but perhaps you want to change that to a period. Because they're not there to ask a question, they're there to accuse. They're of their father, the devil, of Satan, who is the accuser. But you also have to wonder at this point what it is exactly that they expected or wanted. As Boyce notes, it took a great deal of unbelief, if not outright bravery, to ask a sign of Jesus after he had already given so many. What were they asking for? What would have satisfied their request? Again, it's an accusation, but... Think about it. Let's pretend it's a question for a moment. It's a true, genuine question. What would have satisfied them? Give us a sign from heaven. Jesus had healed a blind man, and they said it was of the devil. How could they deny that so many of his other signs were not signs from heaven? Or signs that authenticated Jesus as divinely empowered and heaven-sent? They wanted a sign from Jesus that proved he came from heaven, but they had already decided that everything Jesus had done up to this point was not from heaven. The fact that blind people could now see, lepers were now healed, lame people could walk, dumb people could speak, demoniacs or those who had been demoniacs were now at peace, and at least two persons who had previously been dead were now walking about was not enough. There were other explanations, they reasoned. So if these things were not enough, then what type of sign did they want? I think it's doubtful that they themselves had even considered this. Because again, that wasn't the point. The point wasn't, show us a sign and we'll be convinced. They were simply seeking another opportunity to try and discredit him publicly. The fact that they asked for something so abstract 
combined with their disregard of all previous miracles, paints the picture that they were not there to witness a sign and be convinced of Jesus' divinity or divine authority in the slightest. So Jesus' response to this, really what is an absurd inquisition in verse 2, is to once again rebuke these religious leaders. The Sadducees get to learn a little bit of the sting of Jesus' rebuke that the Pharisees were all too familiar with at this point. And so he refers to what must be a rather ancient meteorological colloquialism. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morn, sailors be warned. Or as it was probably known in Israel, red sky at night, shepherds delight. But I digress. They've asked for a sign. They've asked for a sign from heaven. So he uses the term heaven three times here in his response. I realize that in your translation it likely says sky. You see a red sky. In the morning, you see a red sky at night, but it's the exact same term. It's the phrase heaven. He draws upon a common colloquialism to rebuke them, to rather mock, rather mock them for their request for a sign from heaven. And Jesus is saying, you can read the heavens for signs of rain or signs of a clear sky. You can look to the heavens and see these things, and yet you cannot even tell when miraculous, heaven-sent signs are being performed in your midst? How spiritually dull are you? How spiritually obtuse are you? The rebuke really is one that goes something like this. You have zero spiritual discernment and understanding, don't you? Back in chapter 11 of Matthew 11, Matthew 11, When John the Baptist sent messengers to inquire if Jesus was, in fact, the promised Messiah, when he sent his disciples, John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus, do you remember what Jesus' answer was? Here are the signs. You tell me. Report to John that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached. Here are the signs. You tell me. And rather ironically, Jesus put at the end of that, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Ironic in light of our current passage where the religious leaders, those who should know better than anyone else, have taken offense. But you see, John and his disciples, like the men of Issachar who came to David in Hebron, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. So John and his followers were able to discern the sign of the times. They knew that the works of Jesus were a clear demonstration that he was the heaven-sent Messiah. But these educated religious and political leaders, these great men of Israel, cannot see what is right in front of them. They are unable to discern the sign of the times. Jesus had told the Pharisees back in chapter 12, verse 28, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What is wrong with you? That's what Jesus is asking these religious leaders. What is wrong with you? That you cannot read the signs of the times. This is more obvious than cloudy storms brewing where you know rain's about to fall. This is easier than seeing a clear sky and say it's going to be a nice day outside. 
It is obvious that the kingdom of God has drawn near. You of all people should realize this. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? The disciples have been concerned up to this point that he had offended them. What comes next must have ramped up their anxiety to new levels. As Jesus goes after these important religious and political leaders even further. Because he next calls them an evil and adulterous people. In verse 4, Jesus says that to ask for a sign is not just simple unbelief. It is outright wickedness. To ask for a sign in light of all that he has done, to ask for a sign when the kingdom of God is clearly before him, is outright wickedness. In verse 4, it is an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. There's no other explanation other than evil and wickedness that would make this request and deny the divine origin of Christ and his ministry that's already been made so clearly evident. You see, to demand a sign is unbelief. To ignore all the other signs is unbelief. It's the same wickedness that was so often observed in Israel in Old Testament times. And the prophets called this lack of faith, this failure to see what God had placed right in front of them, adultery or spiritual unfaithfulness. Signs have been given. Signs have been shown. Signs have been offered. But now, when a sign is demanded, it is refused. It will not be given, Jesus says. Because to ask for a sign is itself a sign of unbelief. It's not as if there are no signs. The signs of God are everywhere. They're everywhere around us today. Not to mention the greatest sign we could possibly have, which you're holding in your hands is sitting in your laps. To ask for a sign, to ask for something else, is a rejection and a statement of unbelief. A statement that everything God has given is not good enough. And such perverse thinking will not be rewarded. None will be given it. Then Jesus says, still in verse 4, accept the sign of Jonah. That's the sign I'll give you. He's already said he would give him a sign. This is not a new sign. But what on earth does that mean? Well, we don't know if these Pharisees are the same Pharisees back in chapter 12, but Last week, as we were closing out our study of Jonah by looking at the comparison between Jesus and Jonah, we were in chapter 12. And as we looked at that chapter, we observed a group of Pharisees who came to Jesus in verse 39. And it was there that Jesus said, no sign will be given to you other than the sign of Jonah. And as we discussed, the sign of Jonah is the sign of God's judgment. It's very important to remember, and you may recall this from last week if you've been with us through our study of Jonah, that God did not refer to the rescue of Jonah when he talked about the sign of Jonah. He did not say back in chapter 12 that the sign of Jonah is his deliverance from the fish, but rather the sign of Jonah is being in the fish for three days and three nights. The sign of Jonah is Jonah falling under God's judgment. 
And the sign of Jonah that they will receive is Jesus willingly coming under God's judgment on their behalf. The resurrection is clearly implied from only three days, but that's a footnote. It's not the focus. And this sign, this judgment of God on the Son of God is a sign like, unlike anything they could have imagined. If they had imagined anything when they asked for a sign of heaven, I am sure this was nowhere in their thinking. Unlike anything they would have asked for, his own death, his own burial under the judgment of God. But that was the sign. That was the only sign that would be offered, being swallowed up in God's judgment. And Jesus seems to say that if that doesn't turn you back, then nothing will. You see, that's the reality. Even today, we don't need a new sign. We don't need some new wonder, some new miracle. If the message of Christ suffering on the cross under the judgment of God, being swallowed up in God's judgment as He took on the sins of the entire world, if the message of the cross, which seems foolishness when preached, does not result in belief, then nothing else will. There is no sign, there is no miracle, there is no wonder that will overcome this heart of belief. It is the word of God. It is the sign of Jonah. It's what Paul preaches in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again the third day just as it was promised. Both Jonah and Jesus are God's sacrifices when they come under his judgment. Both are raised to new life and both provide deliverance for others. But what makes Jesus so much greater than Jonah is that that deliverance was for the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But as that passage goes on to say, all who will not believe fall under the terrifying judgment of God. If you will not trust in the death of the Messiah as he falls under the judgment of God and is ultimately raised from the dead, then there is nothing more for you. That is sign enough. You need no other sign. You need to only see the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Son of God. There are many persons today, sadly many false versions of Christianity and other religions that seek for signs or offer miraculous signs as proof that they are from God. But Christ says that seeking these signs is not a sign of spirituality. It is not a sign of spiritual maturity, but it is a sign rather of wickedness. Signs are never the point. You see, the problem with signs and wonders and miracles is you want more and you want more and you want more. And the sign, the wonder, and the miracle become the focus. Not the sign giver. I mean, you've missed the point entirely. There's so many persons still seeking for a sign, for some proof, some evidence that will somehow lead to greater faith, or that will somehow convince their unbelieving friend, their family member, or neighbor. But Jesus does not offer that. Instead, as we see so often throughout the New Testament, the responsibility has fallen to us. Not to perform signs, wonders, and miracles, but to preach the gospel. To preach the judgment of God and the salvation of God. To preach the sign of Jonah. 
But there's people that Jesus is dealing with. This is an evil and adulterous people who have hardened their hearts in unbelief. So Jesus, he cuts his return to Galilee short and sails back across to Gentile territory. Jesus' withdrawal at the end of chapter 4 is uh, from these religious leaders. It's a sign of rejection. And just as you have closed your heart to me, I have rejected you. That's what's being symbolized as he packs up and leaves. You see, what was interesting is the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were the ones who were used to doing the accepting and the rejecting. We'll decide who we approve of and who we reject, who we send away. And Jesus says, enough with you, I reject you. They weren't used to this rejection. And after leaving them, we won't encounter them again until chapter 19 of Matthew. But the story doesn't end there. Because there's been these silent bystanders who all along have been the main source of Jesus' teaching, the main focus of this whole interaction. Even though Jesus was responding to the Pharisees and Sadducees, he was, in fact, teaching not them, but his disciples. That was his primary audience. That was who he was focused on in all of this. Theirs was the faith that he was seeking to increase. The Pharisees and Sadducees had already closed their hearts to the gospel, had already closed their hearts to faith. And so in this entire interaction, Jesus is cognizant that he has these bystanders, these disciples, and he desires to see their faith increase. He wasn't done teaching them that day. And Matthew provides us with a view into a rather fascinating interaction between Jesus and his disciples after this altercation with the Pharisees and Sadducees. And it continues this theme of faith and belief. After the tense and heated conversation in verses 1 through 4, verse 5 is, it's really, it's a touch amusing, isn't it? The disciples forgot to take the bread. Perhaps they were too anxious with Jesus' crossing swords with very powerful people, those who would eventually put him to death. We know from chapter 15 that they did. They got worried about these things. They got worried about Jesus antagonizing the religious leaders and the political leaders. So you can imagine this just heightened that anxiety even further. And whoever it was who was supposed to pack the bread forgot it. You wonder at what point, sailing back across, they recognized this and began chiding that person. And Matthew provides this piece of information in verse 5 so that we really understand the response of the disciples in verse 7. But as they sail back across, Jesus lets the disciples, or intends for the disciples, to meditate on the events of the day as they sail back across to Gentile, I'm sorry, yeah, to Gentile territory across the sea. But upon landing, Jesus says, as if collecting his thoughts from their recent interaction, beware the yeast or you may read leaven. We don't use leaven as often anymore. Beware, beware the least yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. What an odd statement. Can you imagine being one of the disciples having gone in the boat, sailing back across? Your attention has been on the fact that you've forgotten the bread, or someone has. You land on the other side of the sea, and Jesus speaks, presumably for the first time, and he says, beware the yeast of the Pharisees 
and Sadducees. What did he mean? Well, quite frankly, the disciples had no idea what he meant. They had no idea at all. The best they could come up with is he had heard them talking about who had forgotten the bread. And yet here Jesus is trying to teach them an important spiritual lesson to really bring to a close, bring to a climax what they have just observed. And here they are preoccupied with the fact that someone has forgotten the bread. You can picture them turning to one another. They think Jesus is rebuking them now for forgetting the bread. You have to wonder what type of blame shifting began at that point. And yet that's not what Jesus is focused on at all, is it? We might wonder how they could be so oblivious. How could they be so easily distracted from what Jesus is saying and what he is teaching to miss the spiritual lesson that Jesus is imparting here? Surely we wouldn't do such a thing if we were with Jesus. But we need to be careful calling the kettle black. It's all too common to be preoccupied at moments like this. How many of us have been preoccupied with what we might call those bread and butter things of life? Our jobs, our finances, our cars, our houses, our families, many different things that compete for our attention, that drown out the spiritual lessons that God is teaching us each and every day, that surround us. How quickly they distract us from those spiritual things. How many times have you found yourself sitting down to pray and thing after thing after thing after thing fills your mind and distracts you? It seems that my phone knows when to ring based on when I'm praying. It seems that the emails start chirping. The needs of the day start pressing in. Suddenly I remember the thing that I had otherwise forgotten. Those bread and butter things of life begin to fill my mind. Fill my thoughts, distracting me from prayer, from the study of God's word, from giving our full attention to teaching or sermons we are listening to. Now, of course, none of that is happening this morning. You haven't been distracted or preoccupied in the least. But it happens. We all know that it happens. Well, these disciples have had quite a day, physically exhausted from sailing across the sea, Emotionally exhausted from the interaction with the religious leaders and the anxiety Jesus had created by his rebuke of them. You might think that he would cut them a little bit of slack. But notice what Jesus does in verse 8. Jesus rebukes them. He rebukes them for being preoccupied with the bread. There's a lesson here for us. The energy, the attention, the efforts we give to our own physical comforts Satisfying our appetites, seeing to our needs. These are not neutral things in life. And a good thing, a necessary thing, can become a very wicked thing quickly. When we allow it to preoccupy us, to keep us from the spiritual things. And we cannot just shrug off these types of distractions as natural and say, well, yeah, it happened again this morning. I started to pray and I got preoccupied so that'll have to wait for tomorrow. We cannot shrug it off. We cannot say, oh well, I couldn't pray because life was busy or I couldn't study God's word because I had to eat or I couldn't make it to church today to worship the Lord with other believers because I had some other thing. 
No, our preoccupation with things, especially over and against spiritual things, displays a deep failure to understand, just like these disciples. Now, this is a relatively gentle rebuke compared to the blast against the Pharisees and Sadducees, but it is a rebuke nonetheless. And we may well ask, what should they have understood? What should they have known? What should we understand? We'll read on. Verse 9. Jesus says, Don't you remember the five loaves and the 5,000? And how many baskets you gathered? It was 12, you might remember. It was a remarkable sign on that hillside as Jesus fed Israel provided a glimpse into the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. But he goes on and says, don't you remember what it meant? It wasn't the satisfied stomachs that mattered. It was the reminder that God's promises had dawned in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. His kingdom has drawn near. And when God's promises are dawning, you don't go worrying about who forgot the bread. And moreover, the feeding of the 4,000 and the seven baskets left over when Jesus again provided a glimpse into the fulfillment of Old Testament promises concerning the Gentiles. Well, Jesus, a little frustrated that they still think he's talking about bread, says to them in essence in verse 11, I was not talking to you about bread then, and I'm not talking to you about bread now. Stop thinking about your stomach. All you can think about is food. How is it that you don't understand I am not speaking to you concerning bread? And then he repeated his warning from earlier, word for word. Beware the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now I imagine that you and I are a little bemused at this point about what's going on in this conversation. But notice... How different, how different is the outcome to this rebuke of the disciples compared to the rebuke of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Jesus had not said the disciples had no belief, but rather little faith or little belief. You see, the issue is that their faith needed to grow. Our faith needs to grow. But Jesus doesn't look to signs and wonders and miracles to increase our faith. He says, listen, understand. There's no mention of Jesus rejecting them and leaving them. Instead, we read that they understood. You see, a disciple means a learner. It is one who learns. And here they epitomize their name, their calling. They are disciples, and here they learn, they understand. The text says, and they understood that he was not saying, beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You see, faith, the increase in our faith, the increase in our belief does not come primarily through signs, wonders, and miracles. Our faith doesn't come as a microwave meal. It's that slow preparation One of my favorite foods that at least makes for me is lasagna. This isn't Stouffer's lasagna. This is a carefully curated, mouth-watering aroma of sauce that 
goes on all day while she makes it and prepares it. Let's it simmer and steep. It takes a full day of that before you then begin preparing the lasagna and letting it sit and draw it out. It takes time. It takes effort. You see, that's the reality with our faith and our belief. It doesn't grow instantly. It grows through careful time and preparation and understanding. And what they learn is that the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees is dangerous. Despite all of its respectability, it is dangerous. Now, what was the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Well, on specific subjects, there were a variety of different teachings, but they had this in common, and this is the big picture. We could talk, and maybe sometime that would be a good discussion, on the specifics, and we will get into some specifics here and there about the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, but all of their teaching had this in common, and it was that it created a mindset, an approach to life, an approach to God that resulted in hostility to Jesus. Their logic, their reason, their explaining away. It was a rejection of Jesus, especially their demand of a sign from heaven. You see, in Jesus Christ, God's king had come into the world. God's kingdom had been opened by his coming. He had drawn near. And yet they would not understand, and their teaching would not allow them to understand. And it would, their teaching was dangerous in that it would prevent others from understanding. And you see, if you will not put your trust in Christ, if you will not become like the disciples, you will not understand. You'll spend your life worried about the bread, asking for a sign. You'll be deluded into thinking that unbelief is somehow rational, that your desire for a sign is rational. Unbelief is one of the most irrational things possible in light of the signs that have been given, in light of the word that has been preached. But put your trust in him, and you will understand the signs of the times. You see, that was the difference. The reason the disciples could understand, the reason that their response to Jesus' rebuke was so different, is that they had put their faith in him. Now, they may have been like that father of the demoniac son who cried out saying, I believe, help my unbelief. But you see, they had belief. They had faith. Yes, it needed to grow, like mine needs to grow, like yours needs to grow. But it was because they had that faith that the response was so different. They learned. And so when we put our trust in him, we begin to understand these things. You'll understand the danger of teaching that is like that of the scribes and Pharisees. You'll learn that man does not live by bread alone. And again, that doesn't mean that you live on 99% bread and add a little bit of religion on top. You'll learn that the bread and butter things of life are sideshows. They're distractions from the main event. The main event is Christ who came into this world, the preparation, the growth of his kingdom, the preaching of the word, the seeing of souls coming to Christ, preparing ourselves for the life to come. That's the main event. Everything else is a sideshow. Everything else is an attempt to distract you. Everything else is bread. Well, we've had before us this morning these two groups, these two groups of people, and I think that in some way or another we can each identify with one of these groups. 
You see, there's times where we are like those Pharisees and Sadducees. We don't like to admit it because we like to be the heroes of the story. Or if not the hero, at least a disciple. But there's times where we say, I want a sign from heaven. Lord, if you will do this, then I'll have faith in you. If you'll do this, then I'll know that I can trust you. If you'll do, you name it. And we won't put it that way, of course. We won't say we want a sign from heaven, but we test God. Well, what does Jesus say? You won't get one when you demand one. Certainly not one that will satisfy, that will really solve your unbelief. Because unbelief, again, is not rational. It won't be solved with a sign. Unbelief is the conclusion we bring to the evidence. Unbelief is the lens through which we see the world. And so... The Pharisees and Sadducees will go on as they did before. If all we do is ask for signs and wonders and we're unwilling to do the hard work, if we just want that simple fix, we will go on as before in our little faith. The disciples among us, we will learn. We will grow. We'll continue to have our struggles. We'll have to continue sorting out the place of bread in our lives. We'll continue from time to time, I suspect, in excusing our ignorance and our hard-heartedness or lack of sensitivity to spiritual things. But if we are disciples, if we have faith, we will learn. And we'll come to understand because we've come to trust in Jesus Christ. And the disciples among us will not go on as we were before, but we will grow, we will increase in our faith. By the way, that's one of the great benefits of the body of Christ. That's why gathering together, coming together is so necessary and important to the life of a believer. As we encourage one another and exhort one another so much more as we see that day approaching. What day is that? The day that's the main event. We help one another avoid the distractions and the sideshows of life. And we help one another come to a way of life where we do not actually live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Where our conversations when we gather together are not about the weather, but they're about Jesus Christ, about the main event. And we will understand that seeing is not believing. Let's pray. Father, we really want to pray exactly what that father of his, over his son prayed. Lord, we, we do believe. Help us in our unbelief. Help us in our littleness of belief and littleness of faith to grow. Help us to understand. Help us to be faithful disciples. Father, if there is anyone here this morning who is not a disciple, is not a learner of you, Father, I pray that you will convict them, that you will help them to see and understand the weight of judgment that hangs over them, that the only sign that will be given of them, the only sign that will overcome their unbelief is the message of Christ crucified, suffering the judgment of God on our behalf, raised again so that we might be raised eternal. Father, help us with these things. Help us to focus and avoid the preoccupations of life 
and help us to be faithful disciples. In your name, amen.